So hello everyone. Uh, my name is Mahka Moin. Uh, I have the pleasure to host today's session uh, in conjunction with the SDR division. We're so, so thrilled uh, to have all of you join our session, to those of you who are here right now and those who will watch the video later on our social media channels. Uh, uh, the SDR division is pleased to have started this new uh, series around meta theory, uh, during which we really start to dig deep into some of the assumptions, foundations, and theories that have built the strategic management research over the past couple of decades. Uh, last month, we hosted a session about behavioral strategy the uh, link of which is available on our website and I encourage all of you to check that video. Today, we're pleased uh, to have a four excellent panelists with Daniel as the moderator who will walk us through real options as one of the very influential theories around strategic management. And uh, over the next two months, we'll have sessions about attention-based view resources and capabilities and many more that will be posted soon on our website. For today's session, uh, Daniel Cohn from Columbia University has kindly agreed to moderate the session and organize, and we're so, so grateful to John Chan, Tim Fulta, and Ronald Klingebel and Atul Nerkar for their generosity to share their insights and times about this topic, all experts, which I assume like Daniel will introduce in much more depth in terms of the topic arrangement. But uh, looking at all 60 of you who have now joined us, I assume many of you have had interactions in the past with the real options theory. And we would also like to draw on your collective knowledge throughout the session. So please feel free to use the chat uh, to have a very, we're looking forward to a very energetic discussion throughout the session. But to that end, uh, we're interested to know what is it that brought you to today's session. So there is a poll uh, that I've just posted uh, on Zoom. If you could complete this, that would be wonderful. Okay, I already see some results coming in. Wonderful. So for those of you who will watch the video later, the questions are, I'm here because real options is one of my primary research areas versus the alternative that I'm here to learn about real options and strategy. Okay, let's look at the results. I'm sharing the screen with all of you. Uh, as you'll see, like we have 16% of the audience members who are really actively pursuing research in this area and another 84% uh, who are here to more learn, sort of assume this is an option for their subsequent research, uh, which is great. So look, looking forward to have uh, having a conversation around those in as a learning moment. Now, if you could draw on the collective knowledge of uh, the audience, if uh, in the chat you could post a couple of articles, either classic or recent, that have really shaped your thinking about real options, something that you recommend for the 84% of audience who are really new to this topic, who are looking for further insights in how they can really uh, make themselves familiar with this. We can uh, have that exercise for uh, one or two minutes before starting the panel. And I assume the panelists' presentations will cover many more uh, examples, but we can have this as a running uh, archive of our favorite papers by STR members.
Very nice, very nice. And an MBA class that would be right around the time that everybody has collected their ideas and minds and all the comments to start to flourish. And it would have been nice to have another voting and see how many of these repeat, but this is excellent. Okay, as the chat comments come in, I'll, I'll stop sharing screen and then pass it to Daniel as our today's moderator. Again, thank you to all of you. Thank you to our panelists for their time, for the insights. I very much look forward to learning from all of you. And Daniel, the virtual floor is yours. Um, oh, thank you, Maka. Um, can, you, can you hear me okay? Uh, one second. Also. Um, let's see. So um, it's an immense pleasure to be part of the second uh, Meta Theory session, Real Options. Um, my name is Daniel Kim, and I'm an assistant professor at Columbia Business School. So first of all, uh, thanks to our awesome panelists, so Tim, Ronald, Atul, and John. Uh, you'll be hearing from them shortly. So let me quickly introduce today's session. So the goal is to provide an overview of a real options as a theoretical lens to examine strategic questions. Then we'll hear from four leading scholars who approach real options from distinct theoretical and empirical context. But before I pass it off, I thought I would be, I'll quickly sketch basic mechanics of real options. So I've been an active consumer of real options research, but have, we, have only entered this space about two years ago as a potential producer. And Observing that a lot of you use real options as a secondary lens, I thought it may be helpful to take a bit of time to go over the basics. So I had three encounters with real options before I decided to write a paper about it. The so first was in 2008. Um, I, was in, I was 24, uh, very much in love, and asked my then girlfriend to marry me. I expected her to say yes or no, but she immediately responded without hesitation, uh, let's wait. So looking back, this made a ton of sense, right? It's difficult to reverse a marriage, especially in Korea. And she wanted to collect more information about what it'd be like to be stuck with me until death do us apart. So I wasn't happy. Um, I thought she would say yes. So I came back to her um, saying that there are people who do want to marry me and it's now or never. I mean, so it was obvious to her, me and all our friends that this was a bluff. So we dated for six more years and got married. And this silly example, though, captures three key elements of real options analysis. So first, oftentimes, the decision is not always now or never, or yes or no. We often have a third option, to wait or to make a small investment. So there's something in between yes and no. And second, um, this option to wait is really viable for decisions that are difficult to reverse, like marriage or investing in R&D. And third, the presence of competition um, by increasing the risk of, of someone preemptively taking the resource away from you takes, takes away this option to wait. So competition plays a huge role in the options value. And my second encounter came in the financial valuation class at NIU taught by Aswas the Benodron. So let's suppose that I come to you with an investment proposal so 50% chance of success and 50% chance of failure. Um, if you're lucky, you gain 100 million. And if you're uh, unlucky, you lose 120 million. 
the expected value here is uh, negative 10 million. Um, so I'm pitching you something terrible and you should immediately send me away. But let me, uh, let me pitch the same investment, but give it a slightly different decision structure. So now it becomes a two-stage decision process. So now there's a 75% chance of success and 25% chance of failure. And if you fail, you stop at the loss of 20 million. If you succeed, you gain 20 million, but continue, uh, continue investing. There's two thirds chance of success where you make 80 million and one third chance where you lose 100 million. So you can probably see the resemblance between the two pro proposals that I'm pitching to you. The upside is 100, so 20 plus 80. The downside is 120, so minus 20 here and minus 100 here. Um, and there's a 50% chance of upside uh, this route, and then the 50% chance of downside this route or the second route here. And at least on the surface, the two proposals look equivalent. But if you calculate the expected value, you get a positive 25 million. So this option to wait or make small seed investments is extremely valuable, it's extremely powerful. So one key critique of real, real options analysis, and this is something that Levinson mentioned during the last meta uh, theory session about a month ago, is that it trivializes this intermediate stage. Um, oftentimes, we don't get a clear signal of success or failure. So it's never as clear as plus 20 or minus 20. Um, and oftentimes, we don't know how we are doing. And the, this critique of real options by Anner and Leventhal is the third most highly cited real options paper in the strategy space. Um, but in response to this behavioral sensibility that Dan emphasizes, Bruce Colgate would say, firms are also forward-looking. I mean, however imperfect, they plan and correct their courses along the way. I mean, yeah, ask me, they're both correct. But as someone who has been trying to catch up with a vast uh, and, and slightly complex literature, I found this decision tree to be a very powerful tool to organize literature and also my thoughts. So if I were to summarize some of the work by the four panels uh, using this tree um, very crudely and at the risk of offending all of them, um, I hope they don't get angry at me. But so there's a body of work by, uh, by Tim, Marvin and Arcady um, and others that show that this downside risk doesn't look the same for every firm. So for a, for a diversified firm, they can be deploy some of the resource, especially into related businesses. So this option to switch provides a higher salvage value. So it's for diversified firm uh, compared to single, uh, single business firm. Um, this is actually not minus 100. This is some, something much better. And it's pretty intuitive how it should increase uh, entries and experimentation. But they also show that uh, this option to redeploy increases exits with very nuanced effects on firm scope. I thought that's very cool. So Ronald has looked at when firms should pause and make this intermediate assessment. So some firms tend to do it early and some firms tend to do it late. And he uses a very detailed and cool data to show how the early versus late assessment might affect firm innovation performance. Um, John, along with Michael and Hart, uh, takes Dan's, uh, Dan Levinson's critique very seriously and adds behavioral realism into this intermediate stage. So what happens when you get a noisy or, or mixed performance feedback here? So um, using computational simulation method, he warns that in the absence of clear signals, 
real options logic might lead to over entry. And Atul takes this real options to the analysis of uh, technological innovation, competition, and patents. Um, and I mean, this paper shows up in almost everything I write. And I mean, he emphasizes that what's unique about R&D investment is that it's really about the upside. The default assumption is that it will fail. And Atul shows the role of patents in managing this upside. And, and lastly, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, publish two papers. Uh, one, and one paper on how this payoff uh, looks different for different firms. So if you're a monopolist leader, uh, you can't do better than that. So it's not really plus 80, but something close to zero. Or if you're a potential new entrant or a current loser, um, there's nothing for you to lose and everything to gain. So it's not really minus 100, it's zero here. And, it's, and the upside is there. So, and this, has, this asymmetrical payoff structure has very interesting implications to whether uncertainty is better viewed as a threat or an opportunity. So I think, I mean, for, the, for those of us, I mean, including myself, who's been trying to sort of get into this, this space for the first time, this decision tree is crude, but I think it's a pretty powerful tool to organizing your thoughts and arguments. And, and lastly, the third encounter came from the reviewers. So some of the key words for my research includes uh, flexibility, uncertainty, and resource allocation. But that's also probably all of you and probably half the strategy uh, field. And I really think that the theoretical and the empirical potential for real options is, is, is limitless. Um, so it can be applied to analysis of um, budgeting, acquisitions, joint ventures, alliances, new market entry, um, make versus buy. Innovation patents, uh, response to performance feedback, HR decisions, and the list continues. So in short, it's the theoretical perspective with huge, already very successful, but perhaps not fully realized potential. And my personal experience has been that people in this space are very nice. So that's a huge plus as well for me. Um, so I'm very excited to hear from the four panelists. I feel like Thanos with all the Infinity Stones. Um, but to be honest, the whole thing was organized by Maka and Hender. So they're the real masterminds. Um, so, um, so Tim, Ronald, Atul, and John will take 15 minutes to present. And in between presentations, uh, we should be able to take one or two uh, brief clarif clarification questions. But please submit any questions you have on the chat at any time. And I will try to pick the most representative questions and ask submitters to ask their questions at the end. So uh, to you, Tim. Okay, thank you. Um, it's great to be here and with the panelists. Everybody can hear me, I hope. Um, I want to applaud the organizers. I think this Meet the Theory initiative is a wonderful addition to the STR portfolio, and I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, I'd like to do four things uh, in my short time today. Um, one, I'd like to talk about complementarity, in particular, how real options should be seen as complementary to other theories about firm behavior. I'll also get to be complementary to the theory itself and to my fellow co-authors, not co-authors, but panelists. 
I'd like to emphasize the bounds of when this theory is relevant. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, some pet peeves, and I'm going to uh, interweave some, um, uh, some of my own research into the story to give you a little context uh, about this theory. So let's talk about complementarity. Um, I I'm going to make the point that uh, real options is perfectly complementary to many theories used in our field that assume rational behavior. And I hope uh, for those, I, I was pleased to learn that many of you do not study real options. So, so I, I, uh, I hope to convince you that you might be committing a type two error unless you consider the real options in the decisions that you study. So basically anytime a theory predicts a decision is made based on a comparison between benefits versus costs, there's at least an implicit incorporation of evaluation approach. For example, theories around resources consider the size of any potential competitive advantage and how long it might persist. Transaction cost theory assumes firms will take into account the relevant production and transaction costs when making these scope decisions. Theories around dynamic capabilities consider how firms might adapt to contingencies. Theories of com competition assume firms make, a, make choices to maximize their value. Theories of human capital assume that individuals are going to make choices that maximize their human capital. And some behavioral theories even assume that individuals do a calculation uh, albeit with biased information. Uh, so, uh, so if you wanted to make these theories, your theory perhaps quantitatively explicit um, about whether expected benefits exceed expected costs in the decision, you're going to have to make the valuation approach explicit as well. So what should we assume the valuation approach is? Should we assume discounted costs? That's generally viewed as the default approach. Uh, but how, um, how does the answer uh, the theory provides differ if instead we use a real option valuation approach? If we don't use the right valuation approach, we may be committing type two errors with our research uh, where we fail to confirm one of our theories um, even when it might be true. I suppose we might also be committing type one errors, um, uh, confirming a theory when it's, when it's not true. So, so I believe one potent use of real options is to update an understanding of a theory based on this revised calculus and how alternatives are valued with real options. Uh, can real options be used by itself? Certainly, uh, economists and finance scholars uh, use it frequently by itself to predict investment, uh, predict entry, predict exit, experimentation and returns, uh, merely by assuming rational behavior. And we can certainly do the same. So let me provide us some examples of how I've tried to complement existing theory. Uh, the governance decision has been traditionally explored through transaction cost theory. You choose acquisition or alliance 
based on relative action costs. Well, these two alternatives differ in the degree of flexibility they offer. And if we try to value this flexibility, we gain new insight from this theory. So it may be that TCE is not as important as previously advertised, or it may be that it's more important. Um, uh, corporate advantage has been predominantly explained as deriving from synergy, where resources are simultaneously shared. However, it may be that firms derive value through having the option to redeploy. Of course, understanding uh, if the potential to redeploy creates value uh, is important, but it also has implications for our understanding of synergy. It may be that synergy is less important than previously advertised. It may be, however, uh, that it's more important. So it's worth uh, adopting a real options perspective to, to see. Uh, there are lots of examples of redeployment, and here's, here's one. Uh, Federated closed its, its stern chain and reallocated the department stores to uh, Bloomingdale's and Macy's, both inside their portfolio. Um, uh, we think uh, firms having the option to redeploy, uh, uh, we think when they have the option to redeploy, that changes the sunkness of investment and thereby altering the investment uh, and the divestment threshold as well, quicker to invest or divest uh, than firms without redeployment options. So the figure... Uh, here shows that firm A has lower sunkness because perhaps they have the option to redeploy resources inside the portfolio. So here's some evidence. Um, this is a paper with Teresa Diekler. We looked at uh, segments of multiple firms and compared those with single business firms. And uh, this ability to redeploy should accentuate firm value um, uh, should, should accentuate firm value as well. But here we're focusing on is, is revenue volatility. We see that, that, that segments from multi-business firms actually have more variance than uh, single business firm segments. Uh, and presumably that's because of this option to redeploy. Um, here's some more evidence. This is a working paper uh, right now. Uh, we're excited about this. We're looking... Um, the, the ability to redeploy should accentuate firm value under more uncertainty. And, and we find positive changes and uncertainty accentuate multi-business firms more than single business firms. I want to emphasize that, um, that real options effects are really not universal. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's important to know the boundary conditions of our theories and real options is no different. Uh, real options only becomes relevant when decisions cannot be easily reversed, first of all. Otherwise, action lead to a loss of an option. Uh, for example, hiring a part-time or temporary worker is typically easy for a firm to reverse whereas hiring a full-time worker may not be. Uh, 
uh, is also important because it accentuates the effect of irreversibility. So when more irreversibility is present, uh, there's a greater need for real, a real options lens. Of course, um, in practice, nearly every decision involves some degree of irreversibility. And we can exploit the power of the theory by comparing with different degrees of irreversibility. For example, um, I gave you an example of hiring part-time uh, versus full-time uh, employees. So what uh, determines reversibility? Well, I mean, the sunk costs, uh, if you can't recover an investment, um, that obviously determines, but also opportunity costs. Um, you know, if you, you could use the money more uh, lucratively elsewhere, or if you have resources that are not scale-free, uh, where you have to make a choice where and, and how to allocate these resources. One of those non-scale free resources is managerial time and effort. Um, you know, in firms, you might study uh, strategies that might reduce uh, irreversibility. So for example, um, uh, delaying entry or exit uh, preserves uh, the flexibility to do so at a later point in time. Uh, you might reduce investment amounts, for example, by experimenting or, or investing in platforms, perhaps, or, or by choosing alliances versus internal development. Uh, or you might have an ability to redeploy resources inside the So, uh, so here's a few examples um, from my prior research, and, and this is in the context of entrepreneurship, but, but a lot of us study entrepreneurship as well. And the literature typically casts the, uh, the entrepreneurial uh, decision as either, either you're, you're either an entrepreneur or a wage worker, you, you enter or you don't. Uh, but we observe that there's this, this middle ground, this hybrid where, where a person might both a wage worker and an entrepreneur. And this has a case, uh, we call these folks hybrid entrepreneurs. And um, uh, rather than just focusing on the entry decision to move from wage work to entrepreneurship, we often observe that individuals move in some sort of sequential way. And this gives them some flexibility. And this flexibility has value. It allows them to test the entrepreneurial waters before committing uh, before committing fully and thereby reducing, uh, losing their, their attractive wage earning position. Um, let's see, let's talk about uncertainty. Okay, uncertainty is another important component. It's hard to measure since in, intrinsically unobservable. Um, it reflects uh, uncertainty in the minds of consumers, uh, managers, and policymakers about possible futures. Um, it, it's also a broad concept. The over macro uh, phenomena like uh, GDP growth um, or firm growth, micro phenomena or, or uh, non-economic events like war uh, and climate change. Uh, so surprisingly, there's not any one perfect measure of uncertainty, uh, but a range of proxies like stock markets and GDP volatility or forecast 
or news mentions of uncertainty are being used today. And, uh, and Nicholas Bloom um, is the guy to follow in this particular domain. Um, check out uh, the, the website that's listed down below, but he um, measures all different types of uncertainty uh, using data um, to, to do so. And uh, he, he makes that data available. So if you're interested in understanding how uncertainty uh, influences a decision, that's pertinent to real options first and foremost, and you may need a, a proxy for, for uncertainty. Uh, and generally we think about uh, exogenous and endogenous uncertainty when we think about um, Uncertainty, exogenous uncertainty is outside the control of the decision maker. Um, that under exogenous uncertainty, there's an incentive to delay uh, a commitment. Um, endogenous uncertainty can be resolved uh, by investing. So there may be incentives to commit particularly small amounts to reduce the uncertainty or to, to get a first mover advantage or something like that. Daniel, how are you doing on time? Two minutes. That's okay. I'm going to wrap up here. Um, so strategy is rife uh, with both irreversible investment and uncertainty. Uh, and our theories need to be instrumented with the valuation approach that deals with it appropriately. Otherwise, we risk committing a type, type two error where we fail to confirm even when it's true. So um, let's see, just a few thoughts before, we, before I leave. Um, I've been studying real options since my PhD days at Purdue, and I've developed a, a few opinions. Uh, granted, not all of them are sound, but, but, but here are a couple of them. Uh, so Real options does not always imply firms prefer the flexible alternative. That's not necessarily the case. If there's no irreversibility or uncertainty, it doesn't matter. Okay, so, so that, um, that dictum does not hold. And uh, a lot of papers that suggest that, that uh, you know, real options implies incremental investment. Not necessarily do the... <laughs> Do the calculation and let the, it, it helps you, but helps you better value the alternatives. Um, and that's the second point, I guess. I don't, I don't consider it a theory of the firm uh, because I think that way. Uh, I think it, I think it's a better way to instrument theories, particularly those where there's a rational component to investment. Okay, uh, I think that's it for me. So thank you very much. Okay, uh, just want to check, uh, Daniel, can you hear me? And can you see my slides? Okay, I don't hear Daniel speaking, but I can see a thumbs up from Tim. Everything That's is good. Okay, great, thank you. And uh, I, I can't see the chat box, so I'm gonna leave the questions for later, but uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and a big thank you to Heather Berry, Maka Moin, and Daniel in order. Uh, it is very nice to be invited to this distinguished panel, and I, uh, my contributions to this are fairly minuscule, I believe, but I do think, uh, you know, I believe uh, it's because Amaka's colleague, she invited me, that's what it is. 
right? So, but uh, I do want to talk about patents as real options, and that's what it will be. Uh, my agenda, I mean, I'm going to talk about, because there are a large chunk, Marco mentioned that there's going to be a large chunk of people who perhaps have not been exposed to real options thinking. And uh, I think as Heather pointed out, it's really tough to do justice to this whole thing in a span of 90 minutes. And especially if I'm going to be speaking in a span of like 15 minutes uh, to boil down everything is very, very tough. I think uh, uh, Ron, uh, Tim did a fantastic job and Tim's contributions to that area are humongous. Uh, I do want to say something which I really liked about Tim. And I think I'm going to pick on that and talk about what is a good theory. I think Tim's view on this is important because his point was that real options is not a separate, different explanation. It complements the existing explanations. And I think that's something which I would urge the audience to keep in mind is that real options is not being put up as like a better theory or a better alternative explanation. It is one of the many out there. And it has had some hold. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But Milton Friedman, you know, the guy who wrote the paper that only shareholders matter, in Wall Street Journal 1969, was once asked by a journalist that your models don't explain the world. Because when we talk to people, they say, we don't behave like Friedman's models. And Friedman's explanation was simple. He says, I don't care whether people do what I say they do. But if I can explain it, my model is good enough. And I think to a large extent, when you look at real options thinking and reasoning and theories, you will see parts of it being true and parts of it not being true. And Ron Klimber, uh, Ron's work himself has shown, Ron Adner and uh, you know, Dan Leventhal and so on, written a lot on it, and so that's fair. Let's get in. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on the clock because I'm sure uh, John Chen is gonna be like pissed at me because I'm gonna be eating this time. So what is a good story? Uh, what's a good theory? Uh, I've been currently in the PhD class, uh, you know, uh, I can see a bunch of uh, PhD students. I don't know why they showed up, but I can see Eugene Kim from UNC Chapel Hill and a couple other people. But here's what a theory is, what Levin Marx say. It's a book from the book. A model is a simplified picture of a part of the real world. It has some characteristics real, but not all of them. It's a set of interrelated guesses about the world. And what Levin Marx put up there, and Jim March, great thinker, he said, look, a good theory is simple. <clears throat> it's fertile. It's unpredictable. It's unpredictable in the sense it causes some counterintuitive thinking. <clears throat> And counterintuitive thinking is something which real options thinking does allow you to think through. Let me explain. <clears throat> some years ago, I was, uh, I spent some time, uh, I was in India at the Indian School of Business, and this is many years, 2002 or 2003, I think. Uh, I, Raghu Sundaram, who's the current dean of NYU Stern School of Business, he and I were at ISB together, you know, as a junior faculty member, like trying to get my research published. And I was trying to do some work with patents. And uh, he and I were chatting over dinner. I said to him, 50% uh, of the patents are not renewed. And he said, well, what is the cost of filing a patent? I said, 1,000 bucks at that point. And he said, what is the cost of renewing? I said, another 1,500. And he was puzzled. He says, as an economist, I'm completely stumped by the fact that why would a firm even open up their drawer to find out which patent to give up? This is silly. Just opening up the drawer and calling up a lawyer itself is going to be costing more. It doesn't make sense from economic sense at all to even open up the drawer and decide which pattern to give up. And in that moment, there was this unpredictable aspect to this behavior, which sort of led me to the fact that, look, there's something going on. here. 
And a good model should be able to go out there and say some unpredictable, unpredictable things. And so I thought this was interesting. And what Levin Marx said, simplicity, fertility, unpredictability, there was one aspect of it for sure that I could go after. So what's real options? I think Tim has done a lot of uh, things about it, but uh, Myers work really, opportunity to purchase real assets on possibly favorable terms. And the advantages are what? Situations of irreversibility and uncertainty as pointed out by Ron. Uh, and I think John Chen will also get it. And then, by the way, I do want to point out there are a couple other people. Marvin Lieberman is in the audience. Uh, Marvin, I don't know what I can add more. And Sham Kumar and Steve Talman and Sally Lee, they've done some work on this whole. Big shout out to them. Uh, they're different from financial options as they cover real assets. And the real advantage is the ability to defer investment. The problem with real options has been, and Katrina Mashiri at ISE, she put out, she said she loved the Adnan Lamental paper. And the Adnan Leventhal paper was really dangerous for me. And I was a junior faculty member. I just published with Rita McGrath this paper, which I'm going to talk about later. And Adnan Leventhal put out a paper saying that your research sucks, basically. And so I'm there thinking, like, what the hell? Am I going to ever make tenure now? Because Adnan Leventhal said, what's a real option? And I talked to Ron and Dan, and Dan said, everything is a real option, looks like, from your perspective. And I think their argument is very interesting. When you look at financial options versus real options, they make the argument that the value of the option is exogenous to investors' activity, and the market signal option value is readily observable. They said in the context of real option, that's not true. And one of the big things they put out in their paper is that there is a challenge of abandonment. You just can't see the value in decision. And of course, they put up the classic popper story that real options thinking cannot be disproved. You're basically saying everything is true. Now, this is where I thought Tim's work is phenomenal. Uh, he's done a lot of work, which sort of you know, takes on Adnan Leventhal completely. And I, I think, you know, and Hart Posen and so on have also done some great work on this. So I do think to all the junior faculty members out there, it's part of research discourse. We attack each other in the journals. That doesn't mean those ideas are good or bad. It, this, this is how research happens. Those have read Kuhn's Structure Scientific Revolutions. That's what it is. So if you're a junior faculty member like me at that point in time, don't get worried if your work is getting attacked. That's a good sign, by the way. It's very interesting. The McGrath Necker paper did get cited a lot. So, so real option, the issues which I think Adnan Leventhal said that we would expect real option firms relative to their traditional counterparts to abandon projects earlier, have higher project abandonment rates, and then have a whole bunch of these things they talk about in terms of processes. And when I read this paper of theirs, I said, hmm, because, you know, we were publishing the McGrath paper and Nerker paper came around the same time. I said, it looks like they've not read this. And, you know, it's true that uh, what they make is fair arguments. But in our work, we were able to show some of the exact things that Adnan Lamenthal were talking about. And sort of say, like, hey, hold on, we can take you on. Okay. So why can we take them on? Because if you look back at their comments, you expect real options from relative to their traditional counterparts. And to be fair to Ron and uh, Dan, they're, they're not saying it's a bad theory. They're saying, like, show us evidence. And I think a whole bunch of my colleagues have showed evidence. And I think patents as options show some real evidence. What is a patent? A patent is the right to exclude others from the intellectual property covered by the claim of the document, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of people working on patents at this point of time across the world, and I contribute to that industry completely. But if you look at a patent, that's what it is. And the R&D investment that led to the patent has already been made in the past. Though commercialization may be pending. 
So whatever, for example, you know, Ron and Dan side this work and so on. So if you look at a, a company called Merck, which actually says they do R&D through options perspective, Merck has spent millions of dollars on a particular drug. The patent is an option. What does it do? It protects their right to commercialize and do a whole bunch of things. And the cool thing about patents also is that Ariel Parkis in his 1986 paper in Econometrica pointed out that patents have option-like flavors. Why? Because patents do have formal abandonment dates. One, in the US patent system, those of you might be aware of it, and I think Steve Tallman is here and Sally Lee actually did a whole uh, thesis on this at the Institute of Utah, I believe, is that if you look at patents, they have abandonment dates three, seven, and 12. At the end of the third year, at the end of the seventh year, at the end of the 12th year, a firm has to make a decision and decide whether they should continue to keep the patent or not. And that is a pretty interesting point which you can observe. And I think while you know, Ron has done some great work, you can get into Sony Ericsson, Ron, uh, more power to you, but uh, clearly I didn't have the resource budgets at that point of time to get into real companies. So what could we observe? We could observe the renewal and abandonment rates of these patents. And as I told Drago Sundaram years ago, I said, look, 50% of the patents don't get renewed. Why? And so abandonment is happening. So it's consistent with real options thinking. Now patents is options. One of the cool things about patents is what? Whether you look at financial options or whether you look at, they have option like flavor. It, this right to exclude other people does what? It gives the firm the option to leverage in their own products, commercialize it, litigate, seek damages for IP infringement, or license, sell the use of the IP. Now, those of you might be wondering why I put up leverage, litigate, and license. Once upon a time, I had the hopes of writing an HBR article. And there was the five forces model. And I said, I'll write a 3L model. It never happened, so, but I still use it. Leverage, litigate, and license, 3L. So these are rights which you have, not obligations. You can do something with it to protect that right. You don't have to do it. And there are a whole bunch of you know, people have shown that most patents are worthless. So why do you file it? Well, the initial price of the option is filing fee and the price of keeping the option alive is a renewal fee. And so you can actually track this. The reason I'm giving a lot of you, for some of you, this is fairly basic knowledge, but there are a bunch of your doctoral students also in the audience. And this is something which would be useful to keep in mind. So my own research on this, there are two papers of mine, which I think I formally call as real options. One, which did get published and allegedly won a best paper award at the Strategic Management Society. I say allegedly because I don't know whether it's there anymore at this point. I mean, I don't know whether I've lost my award. So if I lost the award, I, there was a plaque they gave me. I think I threw it away somewhere, God knows. But that paper did well. And there's other paper which I did with uh, Shrikant Parachu who's at Texas A&M and Mukti Khairi who's at Cornell now. That paper did not, it got dinged at SMG at Management Science and so on. And then we put it as a book chapter in Advances of Strategic Management. And both of these papers really use real options thinking. I'm gonna talk about both of them and talk to you why they offer support to real options theory. And I think to be fair to my colleagues here, I think John Chen is gonna offer you more evidence on technology investments. Ron has offered evidence on both sides of it. And Tim has done not just with technology, but it's shown in, in a whole bunch of areas, including entrepreneurship technology, joint ventures, alliances, and Sean, uh, I think a whole bunch of things. 
So there's a lot of work done here. Let me talk about my work. Megrand Nerker paper, what it did was it wanted to show that real options thinking is consistent. We were not trying to disprove existing theories. We were trying to say that options thinking is consistent with the R&D investment strategy of pharma firms. And when you look back to the Admiral Leventhal paper, their point is like, show us evidence along those lines, we show you. What we did there was something very interesting. <clears throat> and this is where I call, if you're a doctoral student, learn to understand the industry. And so as a PhD student back in those days, I first of all, understand, I tried to understand what the pharma industry was. We identified all pharmaceutical patents and it, uh, companies which worked in that area. And what we did was we said, look, filing a first patent may not be indicative of a real options approach. And part of the reason is that if you go back to Minsburg, you know, strategy formation and so on, a lot of strategy formation is uh, emergent, luck, and so on. And if you go back to Ron's presentation also, there's definitive or not. It's very tough to say that the first patent in a particular area was actually a result of a clear understanding of what they wanted to do. So he said, okay, the first time you could be lucky. So what we did was we went and looked at the entire pharmaceutical patent database and said that the first time you file a patent in a new area, in an area where you've never been before, you would consider that to be lucky. But lightning should not strike twice. So, okay, you got, so we identified the first patent and so that that's when you know that you had an opportunity to enter and file a second patent and really have growth option. And that's what he said, filing of patents is consistent with the growth option strategy. And what we find is that the first time when you got lucky, if the scope of the opportunity was huge, you actually would file and open up a patent in the second time. And experience would actually have a negative effect because if you've been opening up options in a lot of different areas, I mean, this is one of the things which I was telling Raghu Sundaram was that the reason why firms give up options is because it is too problematic to carry all of them. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an engine driver, then I wanted to be a pilot, then I wanted to be an investment banker and whatever. I never became any of those and I became a professor. But if I wanted to keep all those options alive, you could, my life would be crazy. And so when we look at firms also, and I think this non-scale-free resources you're talking about, it's really consistent. Firms have to make a decision. At some point, they have to say, like, we're not going to open up new options. And what we also found was the competition had a positive effect because there's a lot of competition. You want to protect your options. So very simple paper. Today, I think it would get dinged. But back in those days, no one had shown evidence which was consistent with real options thinking. So you managed to get it through. The next paper which we have is, uh, this is the second paper, Nerkaparachur and Tyre, where we looked at a new area. The state street decision had just come about in 1998. And uh, the state street decision, those of you not familiar with, prior to 1998, you could not file a patent on knowledge. It had to be embodied in a physical apparatus. All right. That's your one minute. Okay. Or less. Yep. No problem. Uh, I think uh, you're being stingy here, but I, I think I'll take it. Okay. Okay. No problem. What we find is that there's interaction in disclosure, what you put out in a patent and the value of the patent. Again, very interesting. Why? Because the irreversible investments in business method, method patents are not that many. And we said, let's see if it works out there. Some other questions which I, we have explored, learning from some small, this is the second part of the Admiral and Leventhal paper. It said, like, show us evidence on these things. 
And we show that structures that you can learn from small failures. And real options thinking is very, we don't actually call it real options thinking, but it's very consistent with that. And so there are a bunch of other papers which we have done. There's a Kanda Guler Nerker paper which talks about pattern portfolio. I mean, you know, the whole point about at some point those options become connected and disconnected. You want to give up some. And last but not the least, we're looking at exercising sales. And that's something with Tian Chen, who's at the University of Hawaii, and Pesha McGraw, one of my colleagues at uh, UNC, who does great work, and of course, me there. I think the future really, there's so much to be done. So much to be done with this area. Are there organizational structure and incentives that encourage or discourage real options, reasoning, filing of patterns? And I think Adnan Leventhal kept there. And we, we have some evidence, you know, Ron's work, John Chen with uh, Mike Liveline, who's also here. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and Hart Poston and so on. They're doing some of that work uh, with the behavioral theory of the form and so on as a complement. Are there other intermediaries that help or hinder the exercise? So if you look at pattern trolls, what's happening there? And the last one is that, are we seeing firms move from a definitive approach to a real options approach or vice versa, or are some firms using a real options approach in one area and not in some other area? What's going on there? Those are all the questions that I think many of you could be exploring. And I wish I had more time in the day. I could be exploring also. Thank you very much for listening to me. Back to you, Daniel. Thank you, Atul. Hi, John. Good morning. Uh, let me share my screen. Okay, can, is this visible and can you hear me? All right. So uh, I wanted to thank everyone for attending. Uh, I want to thank Maka, Heather, and uh, uh, you, Daniel, for, for putting together a, a nice uh, uh, forum on real options. So um, for the sake of time, let's, let's try to uh, go right at it. Um, so I'm going to be talking today about uh, some progress we've made on uh, behavioral theory of real options. And I really uh, love um, Atul's characterization of, of um, a good theory as being uh, simple, fertile, and unpredictable. And so I think uh, I, I'd like to convince you that uh, it is uh, fertile and unpredictable. I'm not so sure I can convince you it's simple, but let's see how we do it. <laughs> um, okay. So let's start just with a, a simple uh, notion of, of options, right? So uh, those who, I, I think six, the 16% of us in this call uh, know what this is and the other 84% might be a little bit unfamiliar, but at any rate, uh, there's a, a, a strike price uh, that, uh, this is a call option. Uh, and uh, there's an upfront invest, uh, investment that confers the right, but not the obligation to exercise an option. And, you know, you have some volatility in uh, the value or price of the underlying asset. And I've shown two representative sort of uh, random walks, a, a green one that's good, a red one that's bad. Uh, if, if the option is in the money, you exercise. If it's not, uh, you don't, right? Very simple. So, um, so how do we make sense of this? One of the, the, the cases that I've been teaching the last few years is uh, Zara, fast fashion. So if you are into fashion, you, you may have heard of Zara. I'm not into fashion. I, I never stepped foot into Zara, 
But uh, I want to, uh, I have to thank a, a colleague of mine, a former student of Marvin Lieberman, actually, uh, Jim Osler, who, who uh, uh, you know, at a conference we were talking, he's like, you know, Zara is exactly what you guys study in, in your behavioral real options. So um, just real quickly, so what does Zara look like? Zara uh, is sort of, um, let me talk about their competitors first. So in fashion, uh, supposedly, uh, you know, their competitors uh, plan for a new season. They invest very heavily in, in uh, trying to come up with new fashion designs. And they, they, they you know, engage in uh, very front-loaded, uh, large manufacturing. And if things go well, great. They sell like crazy, like, like hotcakes. If things don't go well, they have to engage in heavy markdowns for the designs that don't do very well, right? Zara's approach is exactly uh, sort of like a real options uh, reasoning kind of thinker would do. They plan for a new season like, like their competitors, but what they do is they, they watch for trends. So they make small upfront investments to look at trends and they scale up on the items that, that uh, they find to be uh, working out that are trendy in a particular fashion season, right? At least, at least this is how the case writers uh, position uh, Zara's unique strategy, okay? So mapping it back to that uh, simple picture I gave you earlier, right? Their small upfront investment is to watch fashion trends and they produce if the fashion line is in the money by their assessment and uh, they don't produce if it's out of the money, right? So, what I want to point out here is that the canonical options math can't fully explain Zara, right? Under the canonical approach, prices or value in this case at exercise, uh, at exercise time, under the, the standard uh, options math, they're known with certainty. This is problematic, okay? And it's problematic because um, this cannot account for uh, the mistakes that Zara makes in uh, in fashion lines. We know they make mistakes. How do we know that? Uh, they do engage in markdowns. So you can go to Zara today and you can probably find some bargain area and there, there are markdown lines that they, you know, uh, estimated incorrectly what, what they would sell. It is telling though that their uh, markdowns are smaller than those of their rivals, right? And as I hope to, to uh, show you, this is consistent with you know, our behavioral theory of real options. So, so options work, but they don't work perfectly, okay, in a nutshell. So um, let's talk about uh, this uh, behavioral theory of real options, right? So going back to the simple picture of two different paths, right? Uh, as before, we see Zara watching uh, fashion trends, uh, except now, um, they don't have a precise uh, estimate of the value at the time that they have to make a call on whether to you know, produce these fashion lines. They just have uh, beliefs, right? And these beliefs can be erroneous, right? So you, you see here, you see this overlap across the strike price. Uh, that means that decision-making mistakes are now possible. So this is interesting, right? Um, so, um, just some some language to help uh, you know move us forward. 
that, that wobble in the, in the, uh, across time is uh, what we call uh, pr prospective certainty in our work. This is just the traditional options volatility. And uh, the um, uncertainty at exercise time is what we call contemporaneous uncertainty. And this is uh, sort of a, a kind of a, a way to get at, you know, in a very um, partial way, you know, the um, uh, uh, paper by Adner and Leventhal that we've talked about several times already, th that um, there are just sort of these, uh, you know, um, uh, uncertainties that, that uh, sort of appear and, and, and are not uh, fully resolvable in the traditional way, right? And, um, and, you know, we kind of have an intuitive sense of this. There are things that, that even if it, under options logic that we can't just fully uh, square away uh, with certainty, right? You know, things are just lost at the time we have to make an exercise decision. Okay, so um, let's let's look at this a little bit more formally. This is kind of the approach that we've taken, right? So extant financial options theories uh, can be uh, adapted to examine uh, real options in a formal way, right? Um, and there, there is work on this. Um, Tri-Georgis has done uh, a lot of work on this and, and really good stuff. But what about, you know, this notion of behavioral real options uh, with contemporaneous uncertainty? How do we handle that? Um, so if you, if you want sort of uh, the, the mathy treatment, go look at uh, my paper in SMJ with uh, Hart and, and Michael Leiblein uh, for the math. Uh, but rather than going into the details, which um, at, for this form, I don't think is as helpful, let's just take a, a high level overview, right? And um, there are a lot of weird variables and such on the slide, but I, I think the, the takeaway I, I wanna um, sort of convey is that, um, you know, this behavioral theory that we're putting together uh, over years is, is not something that uh, came out of thin air. And I, I, I remember this uh, uh, presentation that I attended years ago when I was a doctoral student at Michigan. And uh, I think, I, I wish I remembered the name of the, the person who gave it, but I think it was a scholar from Harvard who talked about how, who, who looked at historical innovations and how few of those are standalone, almost none. Everyone stood on the shoulders of giants. And, um, you know, I think there's value to thinking about research that way. And, and our research is, is, you know, certainly no exception. So um, one of the antecedents of um, our, our you know, formal theory is uh, the, the Black-Scholes model of, of options. Uh, another strand is uh, the banded model, uh, feedback learning or reinforcement learning, something that uh, my co-author Hart Posen has done a, a, a lot of work on, as uh, many of you uh, probably know. So um, just in a nutshell, our model docks sort of three things. Uh, it's uh, discounted cash flows uh, as, as a basic lever. It's the Black-Scholes math as, as another part of it. And it's also the bandit model. And, and a simple way of thinking about it is that, and this is just a very uh, forced caricature, but you can think of um, the uh, 
Black-Scholes model as giving us the traditional sort of notions of perspective uncertainty, right? Uncertainty about, about the future that, uh, you know, informs the exercise decision. And then contemporaneous uncertainty, uh, uncertainty that remains at the time of exercise, which is uh, in a rough manner, you know, brought in by the bandit model. Um, another uh, theoretical underpinning, uh, something that a, a reviewer in, in one of my papers uh, pointed out is that um, there's also um, an interesting connection with uh, the Kalman filter. Um, and so if you're not an engineer, you, you may not have heard of this, but it's, it's you know, uh, very ubiquitous in, in engineering applications, sort of like um, its theory uh, undergirds autopilots for planes and now for cars, uh, the latter of which is a little bit scary, but, you know, that's kind of the, the theory behind it. Um, so here are a couple of the key equations um, uh, that are behind the Kalman filter. And, you know, just, just in a very rough sense, it's, it's how do we um, treat sort of uh, stochastic uh, movements in, a, in an evolving dynamical system, right? Um, but for our purposes, um, I will just say that um, prospective uncertainty maps nicely to one of the noise terms in this, in this filter. Uh, contemporaneous uncertainty maps nicely to uh, what's called the measurement equation in the common filter, the, the noise surrounding that. Um, and and um, the point I want to make is, is that um, our behavioral options uh, formal framework is equivalent to a common filter with suitably chosen system matrices, these the F, G, and H that you see above, and um, a particular assumptions that you make on the noise parameters, W and V, right? And uh, taking even a further step back, you know, uh, I, I find it encouraging that, that, uh, uh, that these, that the, the thing that we came up with, uh, you know, has these tie-ins to uh, well-established theory, uh, formal theory, um, which I, I hope is a good indicator of uh, fertility, if you will, in, in this uh, line of work. So let me quickly um, talk about uh, some of the applications of our behavioral options model. Um, and I think I'm running out of time, so I will go very fast. <laughs> Um, we have the foundations, the, the SMJ that I talked about, uh, behavioral biases are um, something that we flesh out there and say, hey, you know, uh, that's part of the, I think the strength of this model is to think about behavioral biases um, and, and their intersections with, with real options. Um, oops. There's a, a work on a strategic factor markets and it's um, how we think about resource allocation as a basis of competitive advantage um, along the lines of uh, uh, Ronald's work. Um, and then we have our work on learning curves, right? This is our uh, most recent work uh, with uh, uh, Michael and uh, Hart in uh, AMR. Uh, the idea is quite simple. Traditional conceptions of uh, the learning curve dating back to Spence um, 
have sort of a fixed rate of learning. And we see lots of work that has uh, surrounded that um, in the intervening 40 years. Uh, but what about if the firm is uncertain about how much it's learned? What if um, uh, it doesn't even uh, know for sure what its current production costs are, right? Um, you can imagine something like this, right? It's, it's learning takes uh, sort of a, a stochastic flavor. You can imagine further that um, there is uncertainty even around what its costs will be at, at the time when um, it has to make a production decision. We've seen um, lots of um, uh, real world um, sort of miscalculations um, in, in, in this sort of idea. Um, I think one of our examples was from um, McDonnell Douglas, um, if I remember correctly. A more contemporary example might be Tesla, right? With uh, the um, scaling up the, the Model 3. Um, that uh, learning curve uh, uh, paper uh, shows you uh, some, some tie-ins with uh, uh, first mover advantage, right? So its implications for first mover advantage are, are um, nuanced. Um, in some cases, um, uncertainty enhances uh, early mover advantage. In other cases, it reduces early mover advantage depending on how much competition you have between competitors. Um, how much time do I have? I, I, think we're, uh, I, I think we're running out of time. Okay, we're running out of time. So let me skip this. This is some future work. Um, just to conclude, uh, behavioral real options um, recognizes contemporaneous uncertainty and that there are mistakes that are potentially made in the exercise decision. The math has as uh, formal traditions and, and well-known um, models. And um, it is our hope that we can apply um, our, our model to, to uh, a wide uh, range of areas. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Um, and I know we are running short on time, but if I may ask panelists that, I mean, I think we, the consistent theme has been that how real options complements or extends existing uh, theories of strategic uh, management research. So we talked about dynamic capabilities, flexibility, or even RVB. But to a student, a prospective very smart and qualified PhD student who's interested in real options, um, why don't you uh, propose to them that is worthy of dissertation, that like which topic or question uh, would you advise them to spend next two or three or four or five years looking into? Um, Tim, Achou, uh, Ronald, or, or, or John, any, anything that crosses your mind? I was waiting for Tim to say something because I uh, well, I'll, him. I'll just say, I mean, if you, I mean, increasingly our field is turning to policy and uh, I think that's good. I think it's important to have um, policy implications in our work and to do so, we need theories of how firms should behave, not just theories of how firms actually behave. And so, um, I think real options theory, because it's kind of a rational theory of 
of investment uh, gives policy insight. And so if you want to make a difference in policy, I think it might be important to have this. Uh, and you don't, you know, I appreciate the, the math that John and colleagues did, but, but you can gain a lot of insight just with two important variables, the more uncertainty and the more irreversibility, the more, you know, that's going to have implications on the decision that wouldn't uh, if you assume some sort of discounted cash flow approach. So um, those, that's my two cents. I think uh, I'm going to jump in and I think I'm going to pick a, connect back to what Tim said. And I think Tim said something about it being a rational theory. And I think it's important to connect this to what John was trying to do with, uh, you know, Michael Eibline and uh, Hart Polson. And look at behavioral theories. The fundamental point of behavioral theory is that uh, you would say that human beings are boundedly rational, that incomplete information dissatisfies as opposed to maximize. And I think to a large extent, real options thinking can complement the behavioral theory of the firm. But I think the empirical evidence on that is very meager. And I think to pick up what Tim is saying is uh, the, the policy implications of that are non-trivial. Uh, normative implications of that. So if we can show empirical evidence, then we can go further right? beyond uh, what I call cases only, like in pharmaceutical R&D, which have been published in HBR on real options. Nice to show a large-scale empirical evidence which connects up behavioral theory with real options. Because I think in many ways that will reconcile that gap between what Adam and Leventhal put up many years ago and extend it further. So that's what I would suggest as a thought process. Thank you. 